Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God, that you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn? by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he was revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in, in your mouth is true. So I heard a story about three friends who um, were in a car crash, and, and they all died, and they were standing outside the gates of heaven. And they were asked while they were standing there that what would they like to have heard people say at their funeral? And, and the first guy said, I would love for people to say that I was a great husband and one of the world's best doctors. And the second guy said, well, I would love to hear them say that, that I too was a wonderful husband, a great father, and a fantastic school teacher who made a huge difference in the lives of children. And the third guy said, well, I'd like for them to look down at the casket and say, look, he's moving. <laughs> that story reminds me of the fact that for a great many people, death is frightening. Death is something we want to avoid. I mean, you th think about it when you're in elementary school and you're learning about the great explorers. You learn about one guy named Ponce de Leon who spent his life trying to find the fountain of youth, trying to find a way to defy death. And isn't that the whole point of advancements in medicine and, 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 and medical procedures and things like that? It's all an effort to prolong life and therefore defy death to some degree. I mean, since 1920, the average lifespan of an American has grown by 25 years because we have this obsession, if you will, at defying death, at prolonging life. Because for us, death is very often something we fear. And the truth is that fear of death is actually a tool of the devil. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
He utilizes the fear of death to subject people to lifelong slavery. That, that means the way this widow and this, and this prophet responded to the death of this child. And so think about it with me. What is it we can possibly learn about dealing with death from this episode? Well, one thing we need to acknowledge is that when tragedy strikes, our questions can easily trump our convictions. Here's what I mean. Think about this widow's situation for just a moment. At this stage in her life, faith is easy. But as soon as something tragic happens, yes, ma'am, but as soon as something tragic happens, faith becomes challenging. From the moment Elijah arrived in this widow's life, this Sidonian widow, who likely was a worshiper of Baal, was now recognizing Yahweh. And I'm sure that the switch from Baalism to Yahwehism, for lack of better terminology, I'm sure that switch was easy while the pantry was full. I'm sure it wasn't that hard for her to worship the God of Elijah as long as the flour was there and the oil was there and the stomach was full. But as soon as her life encountered tragedy, she started to question her new faith system. You see, when times are easy, it's very easy to have faith. When times are easy, it's very easy to hold on to your convictions. But when things get tough, when life throws a curveball, when tragedy in whatever fashion or form it takes, whenever tragedy arrives on the scene, it suddenly challenges our faith. It suddenly calls into question our convictions. And look here, 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 18, I believe it is. And notice how this happened in the life of the widow. The first thing she does after losing her son, after he dies, is she rhetorically asked Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? Do you realize what she's doing in that statement? She's blaming Elijah. In times of sorrow, we have this tendency to want to assign blame. We want to be mad at somebody. We want to point fingers. That's because we think that if we can pinpoint who's at fault, we think it'll make us feel better. But blaming others never helps. It only breeds resentment, hatred, and other characteristics that are inconsistent with the life of a disciple. And then if you look at verse 18 again, you'll notice the next thing this widow does after she blames Elijah 
is she used some misguided theology to explain her son's death. She said, you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. In other words, she concluded that the death of her son was punishment for her sins. She was attempting, in her own mind, she was attempting to come up with an explanation as to why this tragedy happened to her. And that's another thing we often do when tragedy strikes. We try to find answers. But searching for answers to why bad things happen is a dangerous endeavor. Because one thing the Bible makes clear is that there is no simple, universal explanation for the presence of suffering. And so when it comes to this widow's words, we have to acknowledge that, as one preacher pointed out, they weren't fair. Her words weren't necessarily helpful. But the things she said are common. Because we have this tendency to try to defy by knowing why. What that means is that we tend to think that death would be easier to handle if we could just make sense of it. If somebody could explain why it happened. If somebody could give justification. If somebody could provide a good reason for it, then we think we could handle it better. But the truth is that death is not easily explained. And this is evident from a conversation that Jesus had over in Luke chapter 13 in the first four verses. His followers, or some followers, bring up the martyrdom, martyrdom of some Galileans at the hands of Pilate. And they ask Jesus this question. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? They're asking Jesus, do you think the reason these people died is because they were horrible, no good sinners? Do you think that's why they suffered? And Jesus responded with a resounding and decisive no. In verse 3. And he goes on to give another example of an unexpected and an unfortunate tragedy in verse 4. He makes mention of the collapse of a tower that fell on and killed 18 people. And he goes on to nix the idea that tragedy could be explained by sin. And in so doing, he indicated that tragedy cannot be easily explained by anyone. This widow is trying to find someone to blame. This widow is trying to find some basis for explanation as to why she's having to deal with this. In her mortal mind, she's trying to work through her grief in the only ways that she thinks will benefit her. And the truth is, that our attempts at explanations often hurt more than they help. And that leads us to the other important lesson we can learn from Elijah about dealing with death. When tragedy strikes, our availability is more important than our answers. 
See, I want you to notice what Elijah did in verse 19. This widow has just blamed him. This widow has just used some horrible theology to try to explain the death of her son. And here's how Elijah responds. In verse 19, look at it. All he does is he says, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. In this moment, it's just as important to notice what Elijah didn't do as it is to notice what he did do. And one author summarized well the significance of what Elijah didn't do. The author said this, Do you know what really impresses me here? It's the silence of Elijah. Somehow he knows that nothing he can say at this moment will satisfy this grieving mother. No words from him can soothe her stricken spirit, so he does not argue with her. He does not rebuke her. He does not try to reason with her. He doesn't remind her of all she owes him or of how ashamed she should be for blaming him. He simply asks her to place her burden in his arms. So often what we do when tragedy strikes is we want to say something to help someone. And while what we want to do is well intended, it is often poorly executed. Have you ever heard a Christian try to explain a tragedy to someone who's suffering and grieving and what they say does more damage than it does good? It happens more often when death is involved, especially the death of a child. Have you ever heard someone say when a child dies that God just needed another angel in heaven? How does that help anybody? That God needs another angel so he's going to take an innocent child? That makes no sense. Have you ever heard when someone passed away, when tragedy struck in that fashion, some Christians say, well, this all must be a part of God's plan? Maybe you've said it yourself. I'm afraid I probably have. Not all death is God's plan. I don't believe it was God's plan for planes to fly into the towers in New York City. That's just evil at work in this world. I don't necessarily think it's God's plan that a building collapsed in Miami last week and people are dying while they sleep. I don't necessarily know that that's God's plan as much as it is the presence of sin in the world, a fallen, flawed world. And so we need to be very careful what we say in times of tragedy. Because what we say could be more damaging than anything else. And I think Elijah understood that. Because he remained silent. Instead of sharing some esoteric explanation or offering some ambivalent answer or even stating some popular platitude, Elijah just chose to be present 
He chose to make himself available by sharing in her hurt and finding a way to carry some of her burden. And I think the present, without saying anything in times like this, has a biblical basis. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 15, Paul instructs Christians to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So maybe something we can learn from Elijah here is we don't have to try to explain what happens. We don't have to offer words of comfort. Sometimes the best thing we can do when tragedy strikes is just be there. Be there and hurt with them. Cry with them. Weep with them. And do what you can to help carry the burden of the tragedy. Maybe Elijah can teach us something about helping people deal with tragedy. But that's not the ultimate objective of this lesson. I just think it's an important lesson that we can take away. See, ultimately what I want us to focus on today is how Elijah defied death here. Now, Elijah manages to bring this widow's son back to life, but that's not how he defied death. He defied death by allowing all of his actions to be guided by faith. Defying death does not require miraculous ability. It only requires faithful activity. And let me explain what I mean. You see, if Elijah defied death by boldly approaching God's throne here, did you notice the very first thing Elijah did once he was aware of the boy's condition, once he got him upstairs? 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 20 indicates that the first thing Elijah did was he cried out to the Lord. That means that his first instinct in the face of tragedy was to pray. And Elijah's prayer is bold for a couple of reasons. Very bold, if you think about it. First, it was bold because of what he requested. Up to this point in biblical history, there had never been an instance of somebody coming back from the dead. Now, we read this story through the lens of the New Testament. We read this story with the knowledge that in the New Testament, the widow of Nain's son comes back from the dead. Jairus' daughter comes back from the dead. Lazarus comes back from the dead. Jesus comes back from the dead. Tabitha comes from back from the dead. And Eutychus comes back from the dead after listening to a really long sermon. But those stories weren't known to Elijah. Elijah couldn't pray, Oh Lord, like you did in the days of Moses. Please bring this child back to life. Because it had never been done. No one had come back from the dead before. Elijah's prayer is a prayer for something that no one's witnessed, no one's heard about, no record exists of. In other words, Elijah's praying for something that there is no precedent for. And so Elijah's prayer is bold because he's asking for the impossible, but he's going to the one who can do the impossible. And Elijah's prayer is bold for a second reason as well. It was bold because of what he did while he prayed. 
As he prayed, we're told in verse 21 of 1 Kings chapter 17 that Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times. Now, we've already been told that the child had no breath in him. That means he's dead. He's not asleep. He's dead. And so as Elijah stretches himself out on top of this child, he's touching a corpse. I probably need to be more specific. Because simply saying he touched this corpse is an understatement. He actually laid on top of this corpse three times. Face to face with a dead body. And while doing that may give you and I the heebie-jeebies, it defiled a Jewish person. According to Mosaic Law, you were deemed unclean for seven days if you touched a dead body. That's Numbers chapter 19 and verse 11. And during that time of uncleanness, you were not allowed to reside within the Israelite camp. You were outcast, so to speak, according to Numbers chapter 5 and verse 2. And you would have to undergo a purification process with water on the third and seventh day of your uh, uncleanness, according to Numbers chapter 19 and verse 12. So why did Elijah stretch himself out on top of this child's body? More than likely, Elijah did this as a visible depiction of his self-sacrificial prayer. His prayer is, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come to him again. And while he prayed, he spread his body out over the body of the boy as if he's offering to transfer life from himself into the child. Now, we don't know exactly why he felt the need to, to put, his, put himself on top of the child, but that's a possibility. And you know what? That's not the focus. Think about this. As Elijah's praying, he probably sounded and looked ridiculous. If somebody heard him praying for the child to come back to life, they probably would have thought he was out of his mind. If someone had gone up to that upper room and watched him lay out on top of the body of that child, don't you think they would have thought he was insane? But when you're desperate, you don't care how foolish you look or sound. And you know what? Neither does God. Because God welcomes desperate people praying desperate prayers. Think about Hannah's prayer. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 10 that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she was praying for God to grant her the ability to conceive a child and even went so far as to make a vow to give that child into the service of the Lord for the entirety of his life if he would just grant her the ability. She prayed so desperately that Eli the priest thought she was drunk. And when Eli learned of her prayer, he said, Go in peace, 
the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. Think about the tax collector in that parable Jesus told. We're told that the tax collector went up to the temple to pray, but he stood far off, distant from the temple. We're told that he wouldn't even look up to heaven with his eyes, but instead he beat his chest. And his prayer was simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And a Pharisee made fun of him. A Pharisee who was also praying makes fun of this tax collector. He does so by thanking God in his own prayer that he wasn't like the wretched tax collector. But Jesus concluded that parable in Luke chapter 18 by saying that the tax collector who looked foolish was the one who went to his house justified and not the Pharisee. Think about Jesus' prayer. Think about him the night before his execution as he's in the garden of Gethsemane. He's retreated and he's distanced himself a little bit from his own disciples for the sole purpose of praying. On three different occasions, he walked away and he said this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we're told that he was in agony with each prayer. And he prayed more earnestly with each prayer. And his prayer was so impassioned and so desperate that he suffered from a medical condition known as hematidrosis, which is when blood or blood pigment mixes with your sweat and comes out your pores. And the medical society knows that the only time hematidrosis occurs is during times of acute fear and or stress. Even Jesus probably looked a little foolish while he prayed. But what we need to understand as we look at Elijah's story here is that he didn't care about how he looked or about how he sounded because all he cared about was communicating to God what was on his heart. All he was concerned with was pouring out his heart to the Lord. When was the last time you prayed foolishly? When was the last time you prayed desperately? When was the last time you poured it all out on the table with the Lord and you didn't care what you looked like or sounded like? What we need to realize is that God is big enough to handle our toughest prayers. And God isn't concerned about what we look like when we do it. God can handle your raw emotions. God can handle your big requests. God can handle your persistent petitions. So don't be afraid to tell him. Don't be afraid to take it to him because the truth of the matter is that he already knows it. He's not up there in heaven shocked by your prayer saying, I had no idea you were dealing with that. Or I didn't realize you needed that. Because as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. 
and He expects you to ask Him. That's why James chapter 5, verse 13 through 16 is so important. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Do you believe that? Do you believe that prayer has that capacity? Because oftentimes we don't act like it. Oftentimes we treat prayer like an insignificant activity that we have to do because it's required of us. But prayer is the one thing God gave us that can change things. Prayer is the avenue that God employs for us to be, uh, for us to cooperate in His grand plan. I think to a large degree, we lose faith in prayer because sometimes our prayers don't get answered the way we want them to. And maybe the problem, the problem isn't how God answers the prayer. Maybe the problem is our unwillingness to pray for His will to be done no matter what. Because you have to remember, He didn't even answer His own son's request the way His son asked initially. He didn't remove the cup. But his will was done just as Jesus' ultimate request asked for it to be. See, Elijah defied death here by boldly approaching God's throne. But He also defied death by remembering and believing God's promises. You see, I'm amazed by Elijah's bold prayer, but I'm left wondering, how did he have the faith to pray for something of that magnitude, something that no one had ever experienced before? And I think there's a clue back in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 4. Excuse me, verse 14 actually. In verse 14, God said, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. In other words, God told Elijah that he and the widow and the boy would have something to eat until the rains came. Well, the rains hadn't come yet. I think that maybe Elijah concluded, 
based on God's promise that since the rains hadn't come yet, then this boy wasn't meant to die yet. So Elijah believed that it was not inconsistent with the will of God for him to ask for the life of this boy because God promised that they, including the boy, would have food until the rain came. And Elijah's belief in God's promise affected the way he approached these circumstances. See, one attribute of God that gets mentioned over and over again in conjunction with his promises is his faithfulness. Before Paul declared that God would provide us a way of escape out of temptation in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, he pointed out that God is faithful. And before Paul declared that God will surely sanctify you completely in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 through 24, he pointed out that he who calls you is faithful. And before Paul declared that God will guard us against the evil one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 3, he pointed out that the Lord is faithful. And before John declared that God will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, he pointed out that he is faithful. And I believe the reason all of these promises are connected with God's faithfulness is so that we'll be reminded that God keeps his word. And because God keeps his word, we can have confidence in what he says, just like Elijah. But here's our problem. Tragedy has an amazing ability to erase our memories of God's faithfulness. It's very easy for us to forget just how good God is and what He has promised to do for us when we're facing tragedy. So look throughout God's history with mankind and you'll notice that He has repeatedly instituted memorials to help remind us of His promises. Under Mosaic law, holy days such as Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were instituted as memorials that reminded the people of God's provision. Throughout the journey of the Israelites, Altars and markers were erected as physical memorials that reminded the people of significant moments in which God acted on their behalf. Today, we observe the Lord's Supper. And we do that every Sunday. Why? Because Jesus instructed us to do this in remembrance of Him. And the first century church set an example of doing it every Lord's Day. And the reason we partake in this meal is so that we'll remember the death of Jesus, which was the single greatest salvific event in history. And Paul indicated that we partake of this memorial because through it we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. See, God knows our proclivity to forget so he gave the Israelites and he gave us a means to remember what our faith is anchored in so that when tragedy comes, not if tragedy comes, 
But when tragedy comes, we'll be rooted in what God has done and what God promises to do for us. And we'll let that dictate how we cope with tragic circumstances. Just like Elijah let what, he, what God had told him dictate how he endured that tragedy. So the other thing we can learn from Elijah about defying death is to remember and to believe God's promises. Promises that he will be with us. Promises that there's a home waiting for us. Promises that indicate the best is in fact yet to come. Some years ago, a 14-foot bronze cross was stolen from Calvary Cemetery in Little Rock, Arkansas. It had stood at the entrance to that cemetery for more than 50 years, and it was placed there in 1930 for a price of $10,000. That's how much it was valued at. Just this bronze cross alone was valued at $10,000. The thieves apparently cut it off at its base and hauled it off in their truck. And police speculated that, th that they took that bronze cross, divided it up into smaller pieces, and sold it for scrap, making what was estimated to be around $500 once it was dissected. And the point is, they didn't realize the value of that cross. A $10,000 cross dissected to make $500. Sometimes we fail to realize the full value of the cross as well. See that same verse we started with today, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15? That verse that tells us the devil has the power of death and that he uses fear of death to subject people to lifelong slavery. That same verse tells us that through Jesus' death, he destroyed the one who has the power over death and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Don't underestimate the value of the cross because that's how we defy death ultimately. We defy death because Jesus conquered it for us. See, I imagine among us there's a great many we're dealing with tragedy in one form or another. At any given time, tragedy is affecting someone. But as God's people, we've been empowered to defy death. Just like Elijah. And this morning, we need to realize that the greatest means of defying death is found in the blood of Christ. Because our sins warrant death. But the grace of God that's made available to us through the blood of Christ can free us from it. Have you been freed from the consequences of your sins?
If not today, you can make that decision and you can defy death along with us. If you'll confess your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, if you'll repent of your sins, and if you'll be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Today, the invitation is for you to defy death. Will you take that invitation? If so, won't you come? All together we stand and sing.